0: Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to the New Books in Literature, a channel of the New Books Network. My name is Yakir Englender, your host today. And today I have the gift to speak with Leslie Grover, who is a writer and a poet who wrote The Benefits of Eating White Folks. In this unique novel that involves also beautiful drawings and poetry, the story is about a sickness in the time of slavery that kills white children. However, the novel focuses on the hero who is a black slave woman and her, her relationship with black men, the relationship with her children, and the, and the complicated and painful relationship with the white owners, the men and the women, with the divine but we also are going to speak with Leslie about the power of storytelling as a tool how to heal the situation today. The uniqueness about Leslie Grover is that she is a Black history writer, but she is also a community scholar activist. She is the founder of the nonprofit Assisi House, which uses the power of story to build the capacity of vulnerable communities. We are going to learn a lot about the sensitivity and the complexity of the situation, but with so much hope about tools, how to heal the future. Leslie, thank you so much for coming to the New Books Network.
1: Thank you. Thank you for having me.
0: So can you share a little bit about what inspired you to write um, this book?
1: Well, to be honest, one of the things that inspired me to write this book was some of, the, some of the history work I'm doing around enslavement and black women. And I saw so many stories that nobody knew anything about. And there were so many experiences. And I thought back to my own ancestry um, and how my ancestors were enslaved in this country. And I said, you know what? I have to write this. I have to write this. And so I was just thinking about ancestry and the black American experience. And that's what inspired me to write this book.
0: I love it. And in the encro- enclosurement of the book, at the end of the book, you, sh- you say something so interesting. You say that you share by the story, the truth and Something that, you know, also in Holocaust um, literature, there is a tension between the wish to share history, like as if we can share things as they are. And sometimes is we, they don't succeed. Even Holocaust survivors don't succeed to do it. And they choose to write fiction. Like Elie Wiesel, um, he said that the night is fiction, but it's full history. And I wanted about I, I wonder if you can share a little bit about your choice to write not like history as it is, but to share it as fiction, but to say I want to share the truth.
1: You know, if I had written the first of all, the things that happened in this story are all um, true. And the book Night is one of my favorite uh, books. Let me say that. Um, and so I understand that notion. And honestly, if I were to put this forth as a history book, I don't think anybody would believe it. Um, We don't talk a lot in this country about enslavement um, where the stories of the enslaved are honored. You know, we talk a lot, even now where there's this huge debate on critical race theory and do we want to talk about race in schools and, you know, do we really want to teach kids about enslavement? At the end of the day, there are stories that happened to enslaved black people in this country that really are harmful and like Holocaust survivors still carry some of that generational trauma. So do Black Americans, and you know, choosing to write this as fiction, I think, is one way that we can get people to to read it and to to be like, wow, this is so this is so outrageous that this would happen in this fiction book, but at the same time, to realize that this happened in real life too.
0: And I also wonder, Leslie, if you can, before we will go deep into the book itself. I wonder if you can share a little bit about the unique way that the book is, um, that you build this book. We have poetry, we have fiction, and we have drawing. For me, I loved it so much because you gave me some visualization, you gave me the narrative, and you gave me like, I felt almost theology of, of as a, maybe as a religious person. I wonder if you can share a little bit about this combination of the book?
1: Well, thank you. You know, it was an attempt to fuse all of our artistic senses. Um, It was an attempt to to take a, a break from some of the things that were happening in the story, but yet keep us grounded in the fact that we are fused in past and present and many of the visual things that we see today and many of the visual things that you might see with black americans or people down south that comes from somewhere that's grounded in something so having these elements of short pieces of poetry or long parts of this narrative, and then just a small uh, picture um, was just a way to to fuse those things together. On the lighter side, you know, I think I'm funny. You know, I laugh at all of my own jokes. I think I'm hilarious. Um, I don't know if anybody else would agree, uh, but... This book, The Benefits of Eating White Folks, if you ever look at old Southern cookbooks, like from the 20s, 30s, and 40s, they look like this book. They've got like this background, and they've got like the recipe, and then they might have a little picture of the recipe. So I thought that um, when we were discussing, you know, I was very surprised and, and pleased that the publisher actually uh listened and said okay we'll talk to our artist about it and i thought really <laughs>
0: <laughs> wow wait 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 share with us a little bit more so now you tell me actually something that i didn't see because i'm not an american so i wanted to ask you about the benefits like about the title right the benefits of eating white fox but now you say that actually all what I see here is, in a way, a cooking
1: book. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so, like, so you know, so um, I don't. I, I'm guessing around. Really well, there have always sort of been these American cookbooks, but there was a time when um, cookbooks were really popular. There was like the Joy of Cooking and the Southern Cook, and all these things, and they all look like these. The cookbooks had like little symbols on the front and a big, um, curly way of, of doing the things. And so it was, I just thought, Hey, let's make it, even though, you know, we're not actually talking about cannibalism, you know, we're not talking about eating white folks. I want to make that clear, but, um, you know, yeah, it's, if you Google like one of those images or something, you'll, you might find the book looks a little bit familiar.
0: Fascinating. Fascinating. Um, And one more thing that you share as an acknowledgement, and you also, it's very clear in the book itself. I want to learn from you about the role of ancestors, about the wisdom. Um, I loved, as someone who grew up in a religious Jewish um, home, where we, it's like, you know, every kid in my community where I grew up, needs to know the stories about the grand grandparents, at least like five, six generations. And something that strikes me is that you start with saying thank you to the ancestors that um, gave you, you know, the energy and power to write. But also something that strikes me is how much, because of the rape and question there, you know, that it's like, we don't know about the ancestors Can you share a little bit about this complexity?
1: Yes. So um, like you, um, I grew up in a really religious household and I grew up in a household where um, our elders, um, and even now, our elders are really important um, to to family. And the role of elders, um, not only do you approach your elders with respect but when they're telling you things and when they're giving you advice or when they're telling stories it's really a treat it's a treat you know for um so uh, i'm vegetarian and it is a treat uh when i first told my mom like oh no and my dad i'm i'm gonna be a vegetarian it was a treat to hear my dad say well, you know, your great uncle uh, was a vegetarian and this is why he was a vegetarian. This is why he did these things, you know, or to go and just sit and listen to um, my grandmother talk about her childhood or my mother talk about her childhood. And so there are not many Black Americans that know a lot about their history um, in terms of the the continent of Africa like what tribe what country and I don't know those things however um, on my both my parents side of the family sitting and listening and talking to those elderly they told me about certain things that came from my ancestors. Like, oh, you're left-handed. Did you know that you know this person was left-handed? So from a young age, I really got to see myself, yes, as myself, but also as all the best parts of my ancestors. Um, so it, 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 is a, it is a source of pride um, and honor for me to thank my ancestors because they did give me this story. Um, and I couldn't, you know, I I wouldn't be able to tell uh, stories without the oral tradition that we have and the paths that my ancestors put me on. So it's a lot of honor that goes into that. It's a lot of pride, but there's also a lot of reverence um, and a lot of gratitude um, for that ancestral lineage.
0: And one of the things that uh, you're doing that you founder, you are the founder of the Assisi House, right? That is, from what I understand, is a focus on the on the place of storytelling.
1: Yes, um, I, it is focused on storytelling. And we use storytelling in a variety of ways. Basically, we, so we use storytelling not only just to talk about resistance and social justice, uh, but we also use storytelling to talk to vulnerable communities that don't often get to have their voices heard. You know, so for instance, unhoused Black children um, or um, unhoused women or um, though, uh, victims of uh, sexu- sexual trafficking. Um, there's not many times that they get talked to, that they're asked their opinion, that they're brought in on public policy that's meant to help them. So one of the things we do is we don't do any policy work without asking who should be in this room, who's not in this room? And how can we bring them into this room? And a lot of times the work that we've done is all about but policymakers, you know, in their infinite wisdom um, had no idea that, for instance, once we were working on a housing program, they had no idea that, you know, that people, when they talk about having a good house, um, also mean talking about having access to services without having to walk too far or drive or all of these things. They just thought it meant, oh, we keep our, our lawns mowed and, and and wave to people, but until we can have those conversations, we aren't going to make a lot of of changes. So we help facilitate those conversations. We also use our work um, to do healing art, um, to do healing around storytelling and to create programming around storytelling that helps people to begin to heal some of the traumas that they faced. I'm really, really proud of our storytelling program uh, because it just so many of the people that we've worked with and you might and, and if you see our website, you notice like there's no. Um, pictures of the people themselves. That's due to privacy. We want to honor um, those people. And a lot of times the sessions we have are very heavy sessions. We don't record our sessions. We don't do that work. But so proud of the things that we've been able to see people do and see them blossom and see them come out of a place where maybe they didn't even know who their ancestors were. Maybe they felt disconnected from community, but then spending time and tapping into the sense of self and tapping into the sense of story really maybe gave them a starting point to be able to move a little differently in the world. Um, so yeah, that that's really that's really beautiful work for us.
0: So inspiring. And and it led me now let's go to the book. And one of the things that I was thinking as I was reading your book is and, and I want to stay like with the storytelling, the hero, um, I mean, the, the, um, the girl, like the, the woman in, um, in this book, you tell a story that it's not only about the slavery of Black people, but you focus and you give voice to the woman, to women inside slavery. And about even more than that, something that really broke my heart is a relationship with the children of this woman, which are the fruit many times of rape. Lead us in this, please, in this complexity. Because what is the story, you know, uh, sorry, it's like, what's the storytelling this kid should tell? Because it's like the story of his mother the story of his father. It's like, where do we walk? I felt that I cannot breathe as someone who deeply care about my ancestors.
1: Yeah. So, you know, for Black Americans, it is a, a very sordid um, and nuanced history. And I. that's one of the reasons it's so hard to talk about in this country. It's hard to talk about it. And at the same time, there were so many so when when enslavement was ended you know uh well i should say not the the institution but rather the importing um of africans to the americas for enslavement when that ended um you know the owners of enslaved people said, "Okay, well, if if we can't import and buy them, we're going to produce our own." So women's bodies and reproduction and sexuality and childbirth became really important and really valuable. Um, and so a lot of times, the children who were they, they were called children of the of the plant of the plantation. A child of the plantation was a child that was born out of an enslaved woman and an owner or an enslaved man and you know an owner. But it was very clear that these children of the plantation held a very special place um, in history. Um, and in in the hierarchy, a lot of times, because not only were they black and enslaved, but they were also members of their owner's family. Um, so a lot of uh, a lot of uh, a lot of things that you hear about black people being old money or uh, about some of the founding of private black colleges were done by white people who were leaving money to their black children, you know, or they freed their black children. Um, And many times they weren't claimed by the family, but sometimes they were, but it's just that whole thing of, you know, the product of whatever happened on the plantation, even if it wasn't rape, even if it was, even if it was a consensual relationship, that's very difficult to pick apart because if someone owns you like a piece of property.
0: Exactly. What is consent?
1: Yeah, exactly. Hmm. So, yeah.
0: Wow. Thank you. Thank you so much. And can you share a bit about, um, how this relationship between the white man and and the the, the 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 female slaves, what was how it's influenced the relationship between the female slaves the women slaves and the men slaves
1: Yes, so a lot of times' uh, well, all enslaved people, if they wanted to marry or if they wanted to just have a relationship had to get permission from the, the the white people. You had to get permission to be able to do that. And a lot of times if that was done behind a white person's back, you could get into so much trouble. Um, and a lot of times it was a cause for death. It was a cause for definitely a, a nice public beating, you know, a, a lashing. And, you know, also you just, there were times with enslaved families that your family could be taken from you at any time, or you could be taken from your family at any time. So the family is, we know it, you know, sure, there might be a, a father, a mother, some children, but at any time, if that father... Uh, was considered uh, pleasing physically and strong, could be put on another plantation or loaned out to another plantation to reproduce with another woman. Or if that woman was particularly fertile, she could be loaned out. There were even breeding houses um, where the whole point was to produce more enslaved people to keep the plantation economy going. So these relationships are just... And that's another reason it was important to put it in a fiction book, because explaining that in a historical context, we still don't, We scholars still argue about this. We still argue about it um, in terms of what is its impact. And even, it even went beyond the plantation into the into Jim Crow, where there was something called paramour rights, that if a white man saw a Black woman that he wanted, it was understood. It didn't matter if she was married, had children, it didn't matter her age. If he wanted to have sexual access to her, then he could have sexual access to her. And she didn't have a choice in the matter.
0: So, yeah. And I think something, lesbians, that you you do in the book that I really could feel the emotions. It's not only about like, what happened historically but it's like you bring them the feeling like I could feel we can feel you know as readers the fear the disgust, the how to look how she look at herself with all what's happening to her all together and I want to ask you if it's okay that you will read for for us um two points two points that that speak deeply speaks to me one is in page two and the other is in page 126. And it speaks, both of them speaks about the relationship between, um, between the woman and God. And this is something that I feel that we also need to give a voice to. So I wonder if it's okay that you will read it for us and then you will share with us, how do you understand the theology around that?
1: Oh, thank you, yes, I'm pleased to do this. Thank you um, so page two is called Divine Ears." Sometimes I wonder if God exists for a black woman. If he does, he must not be good at paying attention. It has been well over two hundred years. Maybe he is too busy watching the injustice, waiting to see if anyone is going to do anything about it.
0: Thank you and can we go to
1: 126? Yes, 126. God knows what he's doing. Why is it when something awful happens, all black people say, God knows what he's doing. It's not like he's the one who killed black children or lynched black men in the streets. God knows what he's doing, they say, but he doesn't kill young people who only want to escape from poverty. And he doesn't grant favors to addicts with hearts busted open. Why should God get all the credit for knowing everything when we're the ones who have to fix his mess?
0: Thank you. Where, share with us about a little bit about this because in a way, God can give strength for people in slavery, but there is also anger. And, and you know, I, and again, I go to, I know it from the, the Holocaust and I know which kind of flavor it's come in, in with uh, with black slavery.
1: Yeah. So, you know, when there is such injustice and pain enacted upon uh, people, like with enslavement, like with the Holocaust and the implications of that, with never the opportunity to heal. Um, And yet, you know, both of our, both of the places that you and I come from are among the most pious and God-centered people and our faith is strong and our faith influences our lives and our communities. You know, there is a, there is a little bit of anger because you know, you think, and I think of, of my character, like, praying and beg, she's begging God throughout a lot of this, like, please, and yet, her prayers are not necessarily answered. um And so many times, even in, in the community work I do, and watching the injustice that's happening, there are just things you see uh, against people. And I hate to see anybody suffer. I don't like to see human beings. I don't like to see anything suffer, but certainly not, certainly not people. And you, you just keep thinking, well, God, I know you see this and I'm praying, but then it occurs to me, you know, we are here for a reason. God puts us here for a reason. And like you said, he strengthens us what it is is—it is incumbent upon us to act out of love and service as well um so looking at these things just saying you know for like and it, it was true like when old people old people say all the time oh black people well god knows what he's doing or well it's god's will or god knows best um when something happens or when someone dies and it's like does he or is it us Who are we we attributing the power here of these things? When people are lynched and when they are killed or when something like a Holocaust happens or something like enslavement and brutality happens, that's not God. We're doing that. Those are human actions visited upon other human beings. You know, so it's sort of that complex relationship between the theology of... Yes, definitely God loves us and he's watching and at the same time, we still do very nasty human things to one another and all under a loving God. So why are we blaming him for for what we're doing? You know, if we love him, then our actions should make these things wrong then we should push back against these things. You know, to hear people say ridiculous things about the Holocaust and enslavement is, is foolishness. Those were very hurtful, evil things done to groups of people, innocent groups of people. God didn't do that. Human beings did, you know. And, and, but at the same time, there's almost this anger of like, well, God, why did you not turn their heart? Yes. How, how could you not punish them? Why are we punished? You know, it feels it feels like that. And I think sometimes, you know, having struggled with my faith before, it was just in that moment where you love God so much that you cry out to him to ask these questions and you realize that the answer is within you. It's in your heart.
0: Wow, yes. And I think something that I took from your writings is um, that it also depends on what the relationship with the divine make us to do. Because if it makes us to be passive and to say, God knows, then it leaves us to be passive and in a way to let the suffering continue. Yes. And if the relationship with the divine give us the energy and the, and, and the courage, to stop it, then it's a new relationship. And it's something that I saw that in in the second part, in the second um, reading from 126 is you speak, she speaks to God as a male, as he. Mm -hmm. It's clear that there is also the gender element of, of, of the divine and the speaker.
1: Yes, yes. I mean, and we're, you know, thinking about early religious practices of enslaved people, there were, there was a belief in God, but God didn't look like the Western God that many Black Americans are familiar with today. Um, God was, God was, everywhere and in everything and in, and, in, and we could see these, we could see God in one another and in community. Um, but there was something about enslavement and wanting to control black bodies and control black spirits that put God into a very narrow box, a white, old, beard flowing God. Um, and that's not necessarily the case, but in, in this book where where our main character is is in the midst of all of these things, that's the only power st- structure. That power structure has not only held her and taken her family away from her, and, and now her daughter uh, that she's searching for, but also parts of herself, but yet, underneath all of that her faith is strong enough to to cry out to some god believing that he belongs to her and she belongs to him
0: and the kids belong to her yes yes and we have here's a link yes another subject that that really hit me uh, it was really hard to read and so important happening in page six, and the poem called Tears.
1: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
0: Please, will you please read for us, and then, and then I want to learn from you.
1: <laughs> yes, Tears. I watch how the world laps up white women's tears. When she fucks up, all she has to do to get forgiveness is cry.
0: I mean, in the book, we have the relationship between the, 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 the slave and the owner who is white. And they grow up together in a way as best friends. Yes. There is something here about the cry that it's an ex- it can become an excuse. Yeah. What does it mean? How cry can be an excuse?
1: Well... There are these viral videos um, where white women are calling the cops, on black people doing everyday things. Um, There might be black people trying to barbecue in the park or bird watch in the park or a little black kid selling lemonade outside of an apartment building. And in every single one of these um, things, you have white women who call the police and then pretend to cry. And there's something about white tears and when white women cry, they're automatically, they're automatically, people wanna care for them, they're listened to, they get attention. Even when little white girls go missing, like it, it, everything stops to find these little white girls to listen to these white women. And yet for other women, any other woman who isn't white and particularly black women and black girls. That's just not the case. And. Um, that poem was a lot about just how black girls and black women, like black girls, never get to be black girls. There's no innocence in black women. The way that we've been painted is that we're sexual. So if we get sexually assaulted, it's because we're lusty and, and promiscuous. Um, you know, if if someone makes us angry and we yell or something happens, it's because you know we're just loud, violent black women and this and there could literally be a violent white woman who has just slapped a person and they're getting recorded and she'll start crying and immediately everything is okay for her and it's, it's one of those infor- unfortunate things in our society that again, we don't talk to one another. We don't sit down and have these honest conversations about what enslavement was like, what Jim Crow was like, what it was like for a white person who also in America has not had promises fulfilled. Because in America, the promise has been, if you're white, you'll, you'll be fine. But this promise has not come true for impoverished white people. This has not come true for lots of of, of, of white people who find themselves outside of a certain type of system. Certainly it's not true for marginalized black people. You know, we, we can talk about that, but it's just all these unfulfilled promises. But one thing you know, at the end of the day, that's gonna work is white women's tears. This gonna work. There was a police officer that shot, she was kinda high, walked into a black man's apartment, shot and killed him in his own home. And in her, in, in her trial, she cries. This man's family hugs her, the judge hugs her, the media shows her tears. This is not extended to other people, so there's 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 a, a there's a place of that, that's where that came from. Like if a if a white one a white woman does anything in the world and she wants to get out of it, she can cry, and somebody is gonna take her side, or she's gonna get a softer sentence, or they're not gonna throw the book at her. We're gonna have um, excuses made for her behavior. Let's see,
0: I questions that walk with me and thank you so much for for you know for open such a sensitive question now let's I, I want to do zoom out for a second from the book and 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 speak with leslie as as a as an activist and as a as an educator how do we do it it's like how do we are going how american um you know american communities are going to do it because in a way We want people to cry when they feel pain. And on the same time, as you just described, is at least she she can cry, other women cannot cry. How
1: how do you do it? I honestly think that we have to listen to one another's stories. Hmm. It all starts with stories. If you think about it, we love stories in this society, right? As kids, the first thing we hear are stories. Right. Um, as, as we get into our religious texts, there are stories. Yep. When we go to school, we're, we're, we hear stories. You know, even movies and TV shows, what are they? Stories. Songs are stories. And that's why art is so critically important to share our stories. Um, But I think the thing that's missing and the thing that um, I try to do with my nonprofit is to create that space where we can share stories. Um, Because honestly, you know, there are some stories that are very difficult to tell, but there are also some stories that are very difficult to hear. And one of the things that we do in this country that's horrible is that we don't respect the, the, the st- stories aren't about whether or not you agree with them. It's in the telling and in the listening. So we don't listen to each other's stories. And so what we end up doing is making up these narratives in our head about how the other person is. Well, these people are evil because, you know, white people are evil because they enslaved black people and indigenous people. And, you know, and they they did all of these things you know or oh black people are poor or black people have all of these physical issues i mean we we don't we don't know we don't listen we don't listen to one another we don't read each other's books we don't listen to each other's songs in a way we don't look at each other's art in a way that opens the door for understanding and i think that's what it's going to take and we have to keep trying. I think aside from the stories, I guess I guess it even starts before then is to not make assumptions about people and to really put ourselves in a place to listen. And I know for a lot of people that's really uncomfortable.
0: You know. And I I I something is that you said, and I just want to repeat, you said you 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 helped me to understand the difference between storytelling and narrative. Narrative is when I'm telling about you what I think your story and storytelling is when I'm listening to your story as you tell that. Yes. What the difference?
1: Yes, in, in narratives, there's not a role. There's there's a sense of power, right? You have this person telling this and whom, whomever is in control of this narrative has the power. Yeah. In storytelling, There is a role for everyone. The role of the listener is just as important as the role of the person who's telling the story. And in this way, we can see each other as human beings. We can connect with one another. So there are many, many narratives, but very few stories that we exchange and and pay attention to.
0: Wow, thank you, thank you. The last question is about actually the subject of the book, which is that white kids in the the book are dying. Yes. And then in page 28, I think this is a place where you actually explain us about the DNA of the sickness. So can you please read for us and then I would love to hear from you.
1: Yes. What will it take to admit this place is sick? Imagine how bad off we must be to think that being black is enough for a death sentence. We can say what we want, but can we seriously believe that when people who have been beaten, degraded, oppressed, lynched, raped, murdered, will sit silently forever, how sick is that?
0: Maybe it's it is a part of what the white babies in 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 your narrative, it's like it's it's too much to carry. it is sickness, yeah
1: it is, and we also know that when we talk about racism that racism shows up in ways that not only changes the structure of our DNA, as we know with with Black people and with Holocaust victims, for instance, like this work was based on Holocaust victims and the children of Holocaust victims, where we know that it, it, it changes the structure of DNA. It puts bodies more at risk for physical ailments. It's the same thing with enslaved Black people. It's the same thing. And that, and that two groups of people who are not similar in terms of the way that they have, that the way in they move about in the world, but who do share similarities in historical trauma that's been put upon them, that the medical issues that we can face, the rare uh, diseases that we can face, that they show up the same way in our bodies lets you know about racism. Mm-hmm. That the, the foolishness uh, that still exists for instance in a lot of the medical field of uh, black women not being able to feel certain types of pain mm-hmm. is ridiculous. Yeah. How foolish is that, that a, a woman in labor, her labor pains would be different from any other woman who's having birth not saying that everyone's birth experience has to be the same, but all all mammals who give birth go through a labor contraction. You know, how crazy is it that Black women are usually uh, told, oh, no, 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 you're fine. It's false pain, you know? And then, to as you said, to carry those things can make you Sick, stress makes you sick. And the stress of racism and the stress of discrimination is a public health issue. So when we talk about just sickness, how sick are we to think that none of these things in history have an effect on our bodies and the way we move now?
0: So the somatic is like, that, and the trauma is still deep in the, in, in the body. Yes. Yes. Leslie, I want to thank you so much for writing this book. I cannot wait that it will be hopefully also translated because I think readers, you know, it's, it's a book that gave me language to, to deal with questions which are so far from American questions, you know, about Holocaust, about Israel and Palestine. It's, it's, yeah. we, we need the voices that you bring. Thank you so much for coming to the New Books Network.
1: Thank you, thank you for having me, it's such a pleasure.